You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. We're going to be reading from the book of John, chapter 1, verse and starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't know if you noticed this on your your way in this morning, but on my drive in on I-5, I looked up at the the sign that typically gives the the directions about, you know, like, you know, a, a traffic something or another up ahead or an amber alert. And it said in some some form or fashion, it said, only candles should be lit. Drive sober. (laughs) Sound advice. Sound advice. So today we light the final candle, which is a reminder that we have now approached the end of the Advent season, which is just the beginning of the Christmas season, where we turn our attention to Christ. Now, this Advent season, we've been exploring this beautiful theme of the arriving light, that Jesus Christ is the light of God that shines in the darkness and the beautiful news that the darkness has not overcome it. And we've been walking through this introduction, what is called John's prologue, and we come to what seems to be the crescendo of this whole prologue. Everything seems to have been leading up to the statement that John makes in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Now, there's a traditional Christmas hymn written by Charles Wesley. It's called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I'm sure you've heard it this year. If you, uh, if you haven't already, you will, I'm sure, by the end of the Christmas season. But as I was listening to the song through the Christmas season, what I realized is that there's a lot of sort of complicated words in this song. There's a lot of what you would call $10 words in this song. So what I want to do today is I want to read a verse from that hymn and then allow that to sort of serve as our outline and structure for the teaching this morning. But it goes like this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So let's look at those, that sort of final portion of that verse. And so the outline for this morning will go something like this. The Godhead see, incarnate deity, with us to dwell. And finally, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Two birds with one stone will teach this passage and help us understand this song a little bit better today. Uh, The first point, if you're taking notes, is this. The Godhead see. The Godhead see. Now, 
There's an old Eastern parable, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and it has to do with these men, this group of men that are feeling around an elephant in the dark. And it's often been used to illustrate religion in the world, that we are all sort of just feeling our way around God. And the story goes that each man feels a different portion of the elephant's body, but only one part. And so the one man is up against the elephant's side, he's in the dark, and he says, this, this being is like a wall, sturdy. The other man is up toward the front of the elephant, and he says, no, 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 no. And he's, he's feeling his tusk. He says, this being is hard and sharp and pointy. And another feels his ear, and another feels his tail, and so on. And what the old illustration says, it goes on to explain, is that religion is similar. Each religion in the world makes its determination about who God is based on the part of God that we can feel, based on the part of God that they can feel. And really the question is, who's to say they're right and they're wrong? Who's to say this person understands and this person doesn't? Who's to say that we're right? Each has a little portion right and yet is missing portions as well. Christianity, however is unique because it claims that God, the eternal one, the infinite one, actually took on flesh and blood and stepped into our humanity. Christmas means that we no longer reach to God in the darkness. Christmas means that through the incarnation, God entered into the darkness and now reaches out for us. Listen to the words of John, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made him known. Jesus, who is the word that was with God, who is God, has revealed God to us. And so because of Jesus, there is no more guessing about what God is like. Because of Jesus, there's no groping in the dark to figure out what this God is like. John says the logos became flesh, which means the idea, it got fleshed out. Can you explain that to me? Yes, I will send my son, Jesus Christ. Now, the God that we worship, he remains mysterious. I never, I'm going to try to take away the mystery of God, but this God that we worship through Jesus Christ is not theoretical. He's mysterious, but he's not theoretical. Because the Bible tells us that he has drawn near to us bodily and brilliantly in the person of Jesus Christ, which means there's not portions of God, there's not hints of God, there's not just simply glimpses of God, not a caricature of God, but God himself. And it means that if you want to understand this eternal God, if you want to know this eternal God, then you look to none other than Jesus Christ. Listen to how one theologian put it. There is no God but the God that we see and meet in Jesus. He is the open heart of God and the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humanity. The mighty hand of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. There's no God hiding in the shadows behind Jesus. If we want to see God, we look to Jesus. What that means this Christmas for us as we peer into the manger, we behold the full reality of heaven coming to earth. Jesus is not just simply an ambassador, a representative of heaven. Jesus is our heaven incarnate. The 
Godhead see. Secondly, incarnate deity. Incarnate deity. Now, when we read these words that John lays out here, especially in verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, whether we know it or not, we are being plunged into the deep end of theology, of philosophy, of religious history, and first century history, and so many more categories. I mean, we're being plunged into the deep end. And perhaps we've become so familiar with the stories, perhaps we've become so familiar with these words that the shock of what's being stated has been lost on us. This is a profound statement that shocked people, that shocked generations. Listen to how one author put it. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. God has given eyebrows and elbows, two kidneys and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and he floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. Now, I, I still remember uh, seeing my son for the very first time. It wasn't the day he was born. It was that very first ultrasound appointment where he was about as big as a pea. And I'll never forget uh, him just sort of dancing around in there. There were really no arms. There were no arms yet. There were just sort of hands attached right here. And um, I remember, I still remember the text saying, oh, you got a, a dancing baby with rhythm. Turns out it's true. And so I just remember, I remember that, that, that just little pea-like thing floating around in there. Let this shock and let this, let this, this statement really settle on our hearts. God became that. God became the little dancing peanut. Incarnate deity, fully God, fully human. Not split, not divided, but whole, not 50-50, 100% and 100% the divine nature and the human nature coming together in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, I think for some of us who are familiar with the Christmas story, we're like, okay, I, 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 I could explain the hypostatic union in my sleep. I understand fully God, fully human. But here's the question that we need to consider. Why? Why is this important that Jesus was fully God and fully human? Why is it important that this was incarnate deity? Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood... He, speaking of Christ, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. Dorothy Sayers put it this way. He himself has gone through the whole of the human experience. Everything that you and I will experience, Jesus has experienced and more from the, the trivial irritations of family life, which you're going to get a, a ton of this week, I'm sure, to the, to the cramping restrictions of work, to the lack of money, 
to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat and despair, and ultimately death on the cross. He was born in poverty, and he died in disgrace, and he thought it all worthwhile. There are so many things that we go through in our lives that we are convinced, man, no one can associate with us. No one knows the pain. As well-meaning as the people around us intend to be who say, oh, I know what you feel like, or I've been there, I know what you're experiencing. The truth is that they don't. But he does. So then why is it important that he was fully God as well? If you notice from the bulletin that you received as you came in, we have a, a printout of the Nicene Creed. This is a really important statement in, in church history. And there's a fun little statement, uh, I'm sorry, a fun little story behind this statement of confessional faith that the church has adhered to for hundreds and hundreds of year and years. And, and actually, the funny part of it is that the story involves old St. Nick. Little did you know, old St. Nick helped write the Nicene Creed. But it wasn't the jolly, white-bearded, North Pole St. Nick, but it was the St. Nick with a mean right hook. Let me explain. So in three, now, now I got your attention. Um, so in 325 AD, a, a group of 300 bishops gathered in a city named Nicaea, and they came together uh, to make some really important clarifications about the nature of God. These were very vital times in church history that, we, that the church got it right for the many, many generations to come. And, and really, one of the things at the heart of these gatherings, this council, was the nature of God. One God in three persons, the Trinity. But this meeting got extremely contentious when they began to work through some of the portions of scriptures, like the one that we're looking at today, John chapter 1, that discussed the incarnation of Jesus. And it got especially heated because of the presence of an influential leader named Arius. And Arius was one who claimed that Jesus, this Jesus that we're celebrating here at Christmas, was not the eternal God, and he was not equal with God. He was a created being. And so Arius was given his opportunity to speak, gather with these, these bishops. The, the, uh, the emperor was there present, and he's laying out these arguments about why he believes that Jesus is not equal to God, that while he was human, he was not God. And so all these bishops just sat around respectfully listening, listening but St. Nicholas of Myra reached his limit. And so as Arius was going on and on and on, St. Nick got up very calmly. He walked across the room and in front of God and everyone and the king whoosh, slapped him. In fact, I think we have live footage of it. <laughs> Thank goodness for smartphones. Someone captured it. Um, so, somehow... In God's grace and his wisdom, out of these series of meetings, we got the Nicene Creed. And while I'm not condoning punching someone for not getting Jesus right, please hear me right, it's highlighting for us just how important it is that we do get it right. Because just like in 325 AD, the church stands or falls on the truth of who Jesus is. 
And so because it's really important that we get it right, what I want to do is I want to read this portion from the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Why is this important? Because only God could live perfectly, and yet only man could stand condemned in the place of sinners. Only God has the power to break the curse of sin, and yet only man in his weakness is able to be broken. Incarnate deity. Third, With us to dwell. With us to dwell. Now, when John says the word came and dwelt among us, the word here for dwelling doesn't just mean to come and live or to reside. The word actually means to tabernacle. The word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, what is a tabernacle? If you remember from the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the movable temple of Israel. It's where the presence of God dwelt with his people. But there were certain restrictions applied. It was only reserved for one person at one time of year. There were a certain series of of restrictions and divisions between the presence of God and his people. And yet what John is saying is that the glory of God, that radiating light of God that filled the tabernacle, that glory that we call the Shekinah glory that caused Moses' face to glow so bright that he had to veil himself for the rest of his life, is embodied in Jesus. Jesus is the greater temple where humanity can come and meet directly with God, not through priests, not through a series of divisions, not through sacrificial rituals, but come directly into the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a scene in the book of Exodus where Moses, you remember God's appointed leader for Israel, he asks God a really, really important question. He says, I want to see your glory. Will you let me see your glory? Let me see your face. In fact, Exodus 33 records this. Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord, he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But... He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. I'll pass before you. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cause my backside to go before you. I'll pronounce my word and my character over you, but you're not going to see my face because it's not going to end well for you. Moses saw in part a glimpse. Just a glimpse causes his face to radiate, by the way. Moses catches a glimpse as God passed by and he pronounces his character. But, and here's the great turning point of history, John says that we have seen the glory, not in part, but in fullness through Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of truth. Moses went to be with God on Mount Sinai, and what he did was he came back down with the law in hand. Words which expressed God's character. Words which expressed God's desire for us. 
But when Jesus came down to us, he wasn't the expression of those words. He was that word. He is the grace and truth of God in person. Moses simply commanded what God desired. Jesus embodies what God desires and now comes to humanity to produce within us that which pleases God. All Moses could do is simply command Jesus comes to transform. God doesn't simply speak words to us. God doesn't simply tell us about himself. God doesn't just simply tell us what he wants from us. The good news of Christmas is that God gives us himself. And if you miss that, you miss the whole story. Let me put it this way. Christmas is the difference between cold, lifeless stone tablets and a warm body. Common day illustration. Christmas is the difference between an email from your boss and a hug from the one that you love most. Christmas is the statement that God is unwilling, absolutely unwilling to simply exist as your pen pal. But he prefers being a loved one to know, to experience, and to embrace. And I have to imagine this morning, for some of us, Christianity has become cold and lifeless, like a set of ideas and principles. To you, God is simply the great lawgiver. Like the Phantom of the Opera that just sends something down once in a while that makes something beautiful, but he's aloof, he's distant, he doesn't want anything to do with you, but once in a while he'll send instructions. For some of us, theology has become simply theory. That's become lifeless words on pages, just simply theoretical ideas to memorize. For others, we have become so concerned about getting it right about God on paper that we've missed the beautiful news that God has come in flesh. Whatever the case may be, hear these words afresh, and we need to hear these words afresh, every single one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace, full of truth. Amen? One final point. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You're going to hear that word a lot around Christmas time, or a lot around the church. What does it mean? It means simply, God is with us. I love that. Jesus' name is God is with us. In 1964, there was a groundbreaking New York Times article uh, titled, and it's a long title, 37 Who Saw Murder Didn't Call Police. Apathy at stabbing of Queen's woman shocks inspectors. And it told the story of an event that has been studied by sociologists and psychologists for decades, even to this day. And the story goes that in the middle of the night, a young woman named Kitty, Genov Kitty Genovese was walking to her New York City apartment after work late at night. And she was sadly attacked by a man with a knife. And so she began to scream, he stabbed me, please help, please help. Just imagine that blood-curdling scream that someone would let out if they're being stabbed in the middle of the night. And she's in urban Queens, so she's surrounded by apartments. And then at these screens, all these lights in these, in this, these apartment buildings around come on. And people start peeking through the blinds. In fact, one man opened his window and yelled out at the man, leave her alone, and then turned the lights back out. 
And the assailant was a, ran away, uh, being yelled at, was able to return effectively three times to attack her. And it was over 30 minutes later and far too late before anyone called the police. And Catherine died while countless people did nothing. And there are really two heartbreaking things about this story. The more obvious one is that she died. But the other heartbreaking thing about this story is that countless people responded in indifference. And this incident uh, was later coined the, the bystander effect. And essentially the bystander effect goes like this. It means that when you witness something that's life-threatening and other people around you respond in, in indifference, then you yourself are less likely to do anything. It's, it's this weird phenomenon that's called contagious apathy. Well, they don't, they don't seem to be too concerned about it, so I won't either. And so... As the investigation concluded, 37 people, literally 37 people, did nothing. And as the police began to go, you know, kind of work their way through the apartment complexes and the apartment buildings, getting statements, they began to hear a bunch of excuses. And the, probably the most infamous statement that they received was from an able-bodied man who said this simply, I didn't want to get involved. I just didn't want to get involved. Jesus, our Emmanuel, you know what that means? It means God got involved. It means that he heard the cries of your hurt. It means that he saw the vulnerability of your weakness. It means that he felt the ache of your human struggle. It means that he experienced the agony of your sin and the agony of your death. It means that he came down to do something about it. The God of the universe involved himself in our mess, in our brokenness, and in our hurt. And like the, the Good Samaritan in Jesus' famous uh, you know, parable of the Good Samaritan, it was us, it was us that were, that were lying there dead on the street, dying on the street, knocked down and beat up by life, when everyone else had passed us by, even the religious, even the religious leaders, passed us by in indifference and in apathy, Jesus got involved. When the world passed us by and said, I don't want to get involved, Jesus got involved. Listen to these words from Luke 10. And as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bowed up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn, and he took care of him. Friend, what God is like our God? What God is like this God who exposes himself to danger, who pulls up his sleeves, who gets himself dirty, who gets himself bloody in healing us up? This is what Jesus did, and this is what Jesus continues to do in our lives today. The incarnation of Jesus is proof that he is not afraid to step into the mess of your humanity. He is not afraid to get involved in your life. Listen to the words of Eugene Cho. If the God of the universe was born in a dirty, messy manger, then there is no mess or brokenness in our lives that God is not willing to step into. Whatever you're going through, don't forget God cares.
Jesus is Emmanuel. God is with us. God got involved. Yesterday, I was at our family, our annual family, extended family Christmas get-together. And every year, we do the same thing. We've got a Christmas exchange. And the, the premise of the Christmas exchange is very basic. You bring a gift to participate in the gift exchange. No gift, no exchange. And that's on you. That's typically how gift exchange, exchanges work. But not the one that John is describing here. Today, we bring, here it goes, weakness and lack. We bring sin, we bring hurt, we bring fear, we bring doubt, we bring shame, we bring need. The wise men brought their gifts. This is the best we got. But as John reminds us, Jesus brings grace, and not just grace, but plenty of grace. Grace upon grace. So friend, I don't know what you're going to get this Christmas season. I don't even know what I'm getting this Christmas season. But I know for certain what Jesus is offering all of us. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The call is very simple. Receive. Receive his grace. Receive his love. Receive his lordship. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his transforming power. Receive his new identity reserved for you. Simply put, receive him. In faith, receive him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.